Hey guys, I'm Pete. And I'm Alex. And you're listening to the Kick Push Pivot Podcast. I'm a former Fortune 500 consultant dedicated to the idea of innovation and growth. And I used to manage marketing tours for the Rolling Stones, focused on creating one-of-a-kind customer experiences. On this podcast, we interview people faced with the decision to kickstart innovation, push through doubt, or pivot to something new. We hope you find something inspiring or encouraging as you listen. All right. Welcome, everybody, to the Kick Push Pivot podcast. We're here with another episode. Uh, Very excited about this one today. Um, We have Arya Saeed, co-founder and uh, executive director at the Transgender District, a local nonprofit in San Francisco. Um, So hello, Arya. Hi. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. And then, of course, as always, we have uh, my co-host, Pete Mackey. Say what's up, Pete. Hello, everybody. Aria, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's so good to be here. And just thank you for yeah being in conversation with me today. Absolutely. So for those of you listening, Aria and Pete and I met at a WeWork office in downtown San Francisco. Um, mm-hmm. So we both are frequently visiting those WeWork offices. Very cool. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, that's basically Aria's base where she runs the transgender district and aria i guess just to get started maybe you can kind of tell our listeners a little bit about yourself um some background where you're from and Mm -hmm. um yeah and then we can kind of go from there yeah um okay well um my name is aria saeed i am a uh transgender advocate and political strategist based in san francisco um, and my, um, my, I'm 31 years old and, um, by day in terms of, um, my profession, most people know me from, uh, being a co-founder and executive director of the transgender district, which is the world's first legally recognized district of its kind. Um, and, uh, honestly and truly, I'm, I'm really grateful that I get to do this work um every day and um inspire trans people around the world i um because of my work in founding the trans district and now leading it um have traveled to several different countries on speaking tours and have met trans people in different parts of the world and um people in different countries are are interested in, in starting their own trans district um our work has been featured in forbes and cnn and vogue and the Guardian and all these different things and different languages. No big deal. And, uh, <laughs> just a couple of name drops you. there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, no, but really just, just grateful. Um, you know, I um, identify as a woman of trans experience. So I am um, transgender identified. And um, when I transitioned, I transitioned in high school um, at a time when people did not have uh, readily have access to the word trans um, or transgender. And so um, I think to be in a space now where, um, you know, many people have this subconscious idea that trans people just sort of fell out of the sky in 2008 um, and they've just been hanging out. <laughs> but I think now uh, the broader public gets to have access to us um, in a different way. I mean, you see more and more trans people um 
and 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 our visibility grows and i think uh what people are actually witnessing is is that we finally have agency to talk about um who we are and and our experiences in that way and and living in the world and so um so yeah i am originally from portland oregon um that was going to be my next question. Uh, Where are you from, Maria? I'm from Northeast Portland, and okay. I grew up there. And um, I moved to San Francisco um, first when I was 17 and then went back home. I ran away from home and then uh, came back at 19 um, to San Francisco with $60 in my, in my purse on a Greyhound bus. Um, wow. And that's how my journey in San Francisco um started yeah okay did you know what you wanted to do when you came out to san francisco or you just i thought it i well yeah i you know everyone's like why leave oregon i think um i looked around and this is no shade to oregon i love oregon uh but there was no one's life that i really wanted (laughs) so so you know i had these big dreams of living in the big city and and you know new york seemed really overwhelming so san francisco seemed like the next best thing um and so yeah i i moved here thinking i would actually work in fashion um i had worked in retail in high school and thought that's what i wanted to do um and i think people think that and then they actually work retail mm-hmm. and see how right. grueling it is <laughs> right um especially if you work in luxury retail like um yeah the quotas and and trying to make your commission and you know that's where the real the real coins are um mm-hmm. it's a very competitive environment um and so um but yeah that's what i thought was my dream my dream was to be like a visual merchandiser for like h&m or something okay. um and so i came for fashion school um and i ended up dropping out because i was homeless and and sleeping on the train um on the bart in san francisco and so um and so yeah that's um i think how i entered the social justice aspect of of my profession um i started volunteering at a small local nonprofit um had a drop-in center uh for trans people and um and yeah they saw me reorganize their entire filing system in three days and they were like so do you want a job? And I'm like, yeah, girl, what do you mean? <laughs> and so um, I was hired on the spot at 18 hours a week. Um, I think it was like $12 an hour at that time. And um, I started working, um, yeah, as a case manager for for trans folks. Um, uh, many of my trans sisters, uh, for those who listening who may not know, you know, there is a way in which while we see so much more visibility of trans people and, uh, you know, like hit television shows like Pose, um, of course, Laverne Cox and um, everyone sort of witnessed uh, Caitlyn Jenner's uh, transition. And I think it became a, um, a dinner table discussion on, on trans people in America, especially, but around the world. There is unfortunately a consequence to living authentically as, your, as, as yourself openly and honestly. Um, and for many trans people, we witnessed that very early on. And so there is a level of, of disparity that we often face um, in terms of homelessness and lack of access to jobs and uh, discrimination. And so um, my work 
you know, in social justice really started in not knowing what I was doing or how to manage my own life, but trying to help um, my trans sisters find um, jobs and housing and um, and resources to sustain themselves. So, so yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, that's an incredible story already, but and we haven't <laughs> even you. gotten to the meat and potatoes yet, but I definitely want to get to the transgender district itself. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I know you come here at 19, you're going to fashion school, you think you want to be in retail, you drop out of fashion school, mm-hmm. and then you start working in, you said government or social justice yeah social justice Mm -hmm. okay so how does it come about to you starting transgender district how does that come about yeah so um we our work was all based in the tenderloin and um uh, for those who don't know the tenderloin neighborhood is a central city in san francisco um and it actually has a lot of rich history one of those being that um you know trans people have been continuously living in the Tenderloin as early documented as the 1920s. And in addition, it actually holds the densest transgender population of any other neighborhood in San Francisco, but also any other city in the world. And so, um, so yeah, like um, that's how our work began. And, And we, I don't think we were trying to make a district initially. We, we're advocating because um, actually a developer in the mid-market corridor, a real estate developer, um, was um, in order to build their luxury condo building, um, was demolishing these buildings that once had um, a lot of history tied to the trans community. Um, and so uh, they're called like cultural assets. And so we were just asking that they would adequately document that in their report to the city and they wouldn't and so we sort of fought them publicly in um the planning hearings and what have you and i think all we wanted was to make sure that um you know with the wave of displacement that we saw in san francisco as the economy shifted towards a tech focus um there was a way that so many families and 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 communities that have been continuously living in these neighborhoods since the 1940s um, were no longer able to afford living there. And, you know, the Tenderloin sort of being the last untouched neighborhood in San Francisco, we just wanted to fight, not necessarily to prevent development, um, but to ensure that the trans community, which is already marginalized, um, that, that there be some sort of buffer to prevent displacement of the only neighborhood that we've technically in San Francisco have been allowed to live in um, okay. once upon a time legislatively, but also now economically, right? It's mm-hmm. the Tenderloin is the most affordable neighborhood of San Francisco. Right. And so uh, that was the origins of our advocacy. Um, and so it was myself and my dear sisters and friends and colleagues, um, Janetta Johnson, um, and Honey Mahogany. And, and Janetta Johnson um, is the executive director of TGI Justice Project, uh, which is actually a trans-led um, prison abolition project uh, that does national work in organizing against over-incarcerating and criminalizing trans people who are living in poverty. Um, and in Honey Mahogany, who actually was already famous, um, she was on RuPaul's Drag Race, as a contestant and then um in leaving the show really sort of pivoted towards 
um, social justice and advocacy work. And um, she's actually the first Black trans elected uh, politician in, in the state of California. Um, and she serves as a legislative aide to uh, Board of Supervisors District 6, uh, Supervisor Matt Haney um, here oh, in okay. San Francisco. Um, and so, yeah, many people listening in may not be from San Francisco. So our, our city is a municipality. Uh, so we call our city council people supervisors, whereas in other cities, they're called city council members. So, yeah. Got it. So speaking of, of city, um, mm-hmm. a lot of people in the Bay Area, probably that, especially those that don't live in San Francisco, kind of know the tenderloin for a reputation of being kind of a rough area. That has, that has a lot of homelessness. Um, I've, I've, you know, when Alex and I um, do work in the city, um, I walk to the Tenderloin, and, and sometimes you get a negative vibe from that area. Mm. So I, I, I have a question for you. I guess why do you think there's so many transgender people in that area? Is it because there's a large percentage of people that are homeless that are also transgender, or is it more of a safe haven that's been largely untouched and discriminated against from people because it's not really a, a very affluent area that drives a lot of foot traffic or, or visitors? Mm, um, well, yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I think, um, you know, for me, I, I live in the Tenderloin, um, and I will say, you know, a lot of people don't uh, immediately see the beauty of the neighborhood, actually. Um, it is the most diverse neighborhood in San Francisco. Um, it has every single population represented almost equally. Um, so when you think about Asian and Pacific Islander, um, Arab Americans, Black Americans, white folk, um, who am I missing? Did I, oh, Latinx, Hispanic folks. Um, everyone is sort of equally, almost equally represented in the neighborhood. And uh, the Tenderloin has uh, more children under the age of 18, school age youth. Um, than any other neighborhood. And um, I think uh, part of why we see the the population that it, the way that it is um, in terms of, of trans folks is um, it was actually the only neighborhood in the city where um, the cross-dressing laws that existed, um, I'm inserting air quotes in there, but um, there were laws that uh, prohibited um, surprisingly, in San Francisco, very strict laws around how many articles of clothing that belong to the other gender that you could wear and you could be um, arrested um, if it was deemed that you were dressed inappropriately for your gender. And mm-hmm. so um, there were trans people that lived in other neighborhoods in, in the 20s and 30s and 40s, um, but they were often told. Uh, that they could only live in the Tenderloin because the police wouldn't enforce those laws. Uh The city had designed the Tenderloin to be a container space. Um, And so if you think about the Tenderloin as it is now, but also how it once was, um, there were more bars, more clubs, more strip clubs, um, all of, you know, all the things. It was its own red light district. Um, And the economy, especially in the 20s and 30s and 40s, um, and even the 50s was um, was really uh, rooted in shipyard work. Um, and so, you know, folks would be doing shipyard work. They would work at the wharfs of San Francisco, and then they would go into the Tenderloin um, and party. 
And that's where you would find all the magic. And so I think you see a glimpse of that today. I mean, obviously, you see the scale of homelessness. Um, as someone who's lived in San Francisco as long as I have, um, while the Tenderloin has always sort of been that container space, the scale of homelessness now is is so different. Um, and, you know, we can't ignore that it's a, a byproduct or a consequence of um, decisions that were made and, and, and how the economy of San Francisco did shift um, to where homelessness became ever present. And if, if you live in San Francisco, you know, it's not abnormal to see homeless mm -hmm. folks in any neighborhood now. It used to be right. that you only saw it in the Tenderloin, but now you can go to the marina and see folks, uh, see tent cities and, and things That's like true. that. In Oakland, Oakland used to never have a, a homelessness the way that it does now. That was not an Oakland thing. Being homeless in San Francisco was very different. It was like, as compared to Oakland, um, if you were homeless, um, in San Francisco, it meant that you literally were sleeping on the streets. In mm -hmm. Oakland, it was a little different. It, you know, it's a town. It's not a city. And, um, you know, culturally, I think homelessness looked very different. It was like, oh, you're, I'm, you're sleeping in your car. You're, you're staying on your, you know, your girlfriend's couch or, you know. And so mm -hmm. now when you go around throughout the Bay, you know, you see tent cities and, folks uh, sleeping in RV, it just was never like that 10 years ago um, right. at all. Not at the scale that it's been. But yeah, um, yeah. I, I was going to say I grew up here as well. So I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I had moved to Los Angeles um, around 2010, 2011, and then came mm -hmm. back just about a year ago and was pretty shocked to see the changes that have been made just within, you know, eight or nine years since I, since yeah. I moved down there. Um, it's pretty shocking. Yeah. But I just wanted to add that the Tenderloin, you know, is, is also a safe haven for trans people. It's, it's one of the, I mean, for me as a, as a young trans woman, you know, in Oregon, I didn't know other trans people. I was trans, but I was always the only one, um, both at my high school and then, uh, my brief stint in state college and you know it was always I always felt very othered um, like I was the alien in the room <laughs> and coming to San Francisco and getting off that Greyhound bus and then uh, taking Muni up into the Tenderloin that's when I saw two trans women going into a corner store with their little chihuahuas and like coming out and like that could be you know there's just a way that it was like, oh my God, like someone like me and there's two, oh my gosh. Like, you know, when you've been in an, you know, in an experience where you're always the odd one out and you come to San Francisco and you come to Tenderloin and you see people with a shared experience like you, there's nothing like that. And I think, you know, of course, poverty is a huge contributing reason as to why, you know, we are so concentrated into a neighborhood. Um, especially a neighborhood that is, um, you know, has the level of poverty that it does. Um, I will also add the Tenderloin is actually one of the wealthiest neighborhoods and the poorest at the same time. Um, and, and District 6 in general, um, you see that mix. Of course, um, like there's Rincon Hill, there's Soma, you know, and, and that sort of thing. Union Square. I mean, those are where some of the wealth, those are considered some of the wealthiest zip codes. Everyone thinks Seacliff is that place, but, you know, <laughs> um, you know, a lot of 
tech giant CEOs, they have their like whole floor flats overlooking the bay and, um, you know, they're there and then, you know, juxtaposed to like the single room occupancy hotels where, you know, you can get a room for a night for 50 bucks. Like that mm-hmm. obviously, you know what I mean? And so um, it's, I always think of the Tenderloin as a tale of two cities sort of coexisting. Um, and so, so yeah, there, yeah, of course, poverty plays a role um, for trans people living in the neighborhood, but I also think, you know, there's community there. And, and um, that was also a huge piece of, of, of founding the trans district was celebrating our presence in this neighborhood. Yeah. And Aria, correct me if I'm wrong. So the transgender district, like at Mm -hmm. its basis, you guys exist to help trans people find housing, jobs. What is it specifically Um, or is it kind of all inclusive? It's all inclusive. Um, You know, we are a cultural district and many people are like, oh, what's that? Um, But we all actually know loose examples of what a cultural district is. So every city has a Chinatown um, or like a little Korea or old Ukraine, you know, little Italy, like all of those being loose examples of cultural districts. And, and okay. so our, our model really is about, um, you know, we are city sanctioned and we have boundaries and jurisdiction over several blocks in the southeastern portion of the Tenderloin. Um, okay. And so our, our job in a nutshell is to create and bolster an economy that empowers trans people um, to sustain ourselves in owning businesses, having access to housing um, and jobs, preserving and promoting our culture and arts and, and, and what have you. Um, and very similar to an experience like Chinatown, a lot of people may not know economically, um, um, one American dollar circulates four times in Chinatown before it exits back into the broader economy. And so... Um, when you think about that, that is how uh, these communities have been able to sustain themselves and prevent things like displacement and gentrification because they have such a rich culture and the broader public wants, you know, to access that. And so, you know, restaurants and um, dining and cultural events and, you know, parades and, you know, Chinese New Year, like I'm just using Chinatown as a specific example, Um, you know, the rest of the city and, and it's, its residents go to that destination for a myriad of reasons, not realizing that they are intentionally supporting that local economy and sustaining those families. And then those families are then sustaining each other. Like they have their own banks and schools and what have you. And then, and then when that dollar exits out, you've actually empowered like a whole tree of different people that are tied through a shared experience. And so our goal is, is replicating that um, where we have a corridor of, we don't have it yet, but that's what we're working towards, um, of, of trans-owned businesses and, um, and, and trans people employing other trans people and, and shifting the disparity that we currently face um, and, and hoping that the broader public you know, very similar to like a Chinatown or, uh, you know, what have you, Japantown would come and support and learn more um, about our culture and history and come to our street fairs and support our businesses. And then, um, you know, and then that's how we will see a shift in the disparity that we face where we're actually thriving 
Yeah. So that's a pretty mighty undertaking. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> what are some of the biggest obstacles you faced in this whole um, kind of project you've been working on? What are those big things you've had to battle through? Mm, I mean, um, you know, 2020 and now 2021 is the year that we definitely talked about, um, you know, racial identity, gender identity. Um, and, you know, I would be amiss. I used to have this whole idea that, like, I, you know, shouldn't consider those things. But I do think that, um, you know, me being a Black trans plus size woman does impact, um, you know, my ability to be a successful leader. Um, I would definitely say that, you know, me, Janetta, and Honey were were three Black trans women that the city and um, the developer were not taking seriously. Um, And I think they really underestimated us, if I'm honest. Um, (laughs) and I think, you know, that played a role. I think, you know, there was also this moment where, uh, we finally became legally recognized and, you know, our story was shared in media outlets, you know, across 36 different countries. And, and then we looked around and, you know, Honey had incurred like $20,000 with the debt because she had to use her own funds to like try to get things going. And then, you know we all kind of like played nose goes as to who was going to lead and there was no money and we owed historians and lawyers and all these different people that who had helped us get to where we were were now sending their invoices like hey girl time to pay and we're like uh we don't have any money (laughs) and so i think that um you know, for me in my own life, um, I was someone who had worked in leadership roles in nonprofits um, and always found the culture, non- everyone hates nonprofits. Everyone loves to give to them and, and support the work and go to the gala and like maybe meet a participant and hear a success story. Um, but then the people that actually work in nonprofits hate them, right? Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> there's like this weird this weird disconnect and I was so afraid of like leading that but working in a nonprofit context um I think fundraising and learning how to be very diligent and build relationships with uh really rich people that would probably never talk to me any other time of day uh but saw our cause and and wanted to support and like there was a lot of growing up that I actually had to do um to be successful in in leading this organization. And then when you have people's livelihood tied, like this is how people eat and pay their rent. And of course they want to give back, you know, there's altruism, but there's also logistics. Like I come here every day and I expect that the checks are going to clear and that the lights are going to be on, (laughs) you know, like that was such a different thing. It was different when it was just me, Honey and Janetta as co-founders. But once we sort of shifted to operationalizing, that was a really scary moment for me. Um, so yeah, lots so, of growing up to do. Some of the obstacles are probably very common to other uh, startups or, or new ventures. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, one, letting people know what you're doing so they know who you are, you know, why it's important and kind of that whole story behind you guys. And then two, obviously money, like having the resources. Sounds like you guys boots, bootstrapped a lot of that, right? Like yeah. losing your own personal money, losing your own personal resources. And then, of course, you know, getting the right team in place 
to uh, to help support you guys as you guys start to operationalize things and really yeah. build that out. So th- those are all, I think, obstacles I'm hearing from you. It, it, does that sound about right? Yeah, I mean, those were, yeah, those are the ones that I can think of off the top of my head for sure were the biggest obstacles, sometimes barriers, um, but also things that forced forced us to to shift um, into like a new mindset, a new paradigm, um, and a new relationship to our work. So as far as that new mindset, that new paradigm, what does the future look like for the transgender district? What do you guys, where do you guys see yourself in five to 10 years? What do you want to accomplish going forward? Yeah, I mean, I have to say what I love about being a leader in particular of this great project is that we we're crazy. (laughs) And I say that meaning we have the craziest ideas. And I think what is really amazing about my team in particular is, you know, all of us have been like the underdogs um, and underestimated in some ways and not seen for what we could fully be capable of, of doing. And I think that has played a role in some of the efforts that we've taken on. Uh, During the pandemic, you know, as soon as San Francisco sheltered in place, uh, we started the cash grant program, um, something that never, we've never seen done before, didn't know how to really do it in following like 501c3 laws. And, um, you know, to date, over 36 other nonprofits have replicated um, that model and provided resources, direct cash resources to their um, communities. And uh, you know, we were able to provide cash assistance to over 600 folks and um, across the country. And I think, you know, those are examples of something that was literally just like a half-baked idea that we got to take the risk and try to do. Um, we also launched an entrepreneurship accelerator program um, and recruited Black trans aspiring entrepreneurs, literally with multiple barriers to entrepreneurship. Like, these are folks that, you know, live paycheck to paycheck, bad credit, credit card debt, like, you know, everything that uh, I'm like, good, juicy, like that. Those are the folks we want. We don't want like the Wells Fargo banking commercial, like <laughs> type of people, you know, the imagery of like the bakery and it's like, come get your small business loan from us, you know, and then when you actually meet with them, they're like, okay, great. So does your family have like a trust fund they can give you to as collateral, like, you know, like we we wanted the folks that would never see themselves as entrepreneurs and say, hey, you are an entrepreneur because you say you are. And so we took them through an accelerator program um, and helped them get their articles of incorporation and meet with like, you know, angel investors and, and coaches and all kind of crazy stuff. And then um, built, you know, sponsored their branding their website launched um, and provided them seed grants uh, for them to get uh, the inventory that they need, many of them doing e-commerce. And so those are just like examples of like crazy things we've done in the last year that we're trying to hope and that in five years, 10 years, that, that there actually is that corridor of like thriving, empowered trans-owned businesses and a museum and, and festivals and, like you name it, just like um, a mecca for trans people around the world to see ourselves actualized and empowered both by our city, but also the broader public coming and and sustaining those things. Um, So that's definitely the dream. 
Awesome. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, so, I mean, as we finish out here today, I think it's been a great conversation with you. A really, uh, really interesting to learn about all the things that you guys are doing in the city. Um, real Thank quickly, you. is there any advice maybe that you would give to somebody who's looking to, um, you know, start as an entrepreneur, maybe especially as a, you know, speaking to somebody who's a trans person, a person of color, mm -hmm. um, looking to start their own business? Yeah, I would definitely say that, um, oh gosh, what's the one thing? Um, what is the one thing? I think I would definitely say to be bold, take risk, be unapologetic. Those things sound definitely easier said than done. But um, the biggest thing for me is staying committed to your vision and not compromising. Mm -hmm. um, we actually had this moment in our entrepreneurship program where, um, you know, one of the women was told by uh, an investor that like her shapewear company concept you know, was too specific and it had too specific of a target population um, for marketing and that it should be more open. And, you know, I actually encouraged her to think about why specificity is important. Like if that is your brand, that's your brand. Um, and so be uncompromising in your vision, unless of course someone is, you know, waving a magic wand with like a hundred million dollar investment check, then you know, compromises <laughs> can the money. be. Uh, okay. We can, we can All right, that's the compromises. That's the fashion <laughs> side of you talking. You're like, oh man, that's a nice piece of uh, of velour. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, right, that's caviar leather, actually, <laughs> indestructible. That's awesome. Chanel, the whole store. Awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah, so this has been a lot of fun. Really appreciate having you on the show today, Aria. Thank um, you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so thank you for all our listeners for listening. And uh, we hope you got something out of this episode. And um, we hope to see you next time. So thank you so much, guys. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow us on Facebook at KPP Podcast. If you'd like to be on the show or know someone who would make a great guest, feel free to reach out. Hope to see you next time.